Hello and welcome to There's No Business Like, a podcast where friends and industry colleagues explore topics and interview leaders in our industry of professional theatrical touring. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to There's No Business Like. I'm Katie Miller with the Midland Center for the Arts, and I am excited to be here today in the studio with my friends, Josh. Hello, Katie. Josh Benson here in Marion, Illinois. And Danielle. Hi, it's Danielle from the Alden in McLean, Virginia. And Kevin. Kevin Maynard, Quad City Arts, splitting the border between Iowa and Illinois. And last but not least, Brian. Hey, it's Brian Zelmer from KU Presents in Kutztown, Pennsylvania. I am so excited to be with you all today, and we're going to share a wonderful conversation here in just a moment. But before we get into it, I want to know if you could star in a biopic movie or stage musical, who from real life or not real life, would you choose to play? The first one that came to mind for me was Raleigh Fingers. And it's mostly because of the mustache and because I get asked about Raleigh Fingers, where I know who that is uh, more times in a week than I care to care to admit. Um, so that's the first one that comes to mind. And most of the listeners would know who that is because this is a sports <laughs> podcast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, we're all midfielders here. <laughs> right. I didn't Google it. Wait, is he a sports guy? He I don't is know who a sports guy, uh, okay. baseball player from the 70s, early 80s, late, late, late 70s, early 80s, I believe. And admit it, Kevin, it's fun to say Raleigh Fingers. So. <laughs> yes, exactly. I think I would be perfect for the uh, real life backstory to Wreck-It Ralph. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think that's accurate. This be like an origin story, like him starting out as a kid first and just kind of growing up and then. Yeah. Oh, good. I like it. I like it. Well, Josh just inspired me that it could be a cartoon biopic or a, a character from a cartoon. And I just would really like to be Boo from Monsters, Inc. <laughs> and like a biopic about her like growing up with all these like, uh, uh, nightmare monsters. Have you, have you ever dressed up as Boo for, no. for Halloween? You really should. You should. But I would 100% watch that. Yes. <laughs> yep. Absolutely. I love it. And it's the after story of Oh, it has after to be. the Monsters Inc. It's perfect. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of a prequel. <laughs> I mean, I'll do that too. I'm, I'm very adaptable. <laughs> Danielle playing the baby. <laughs> so even though he was tall and thin, I'm I'm neither of those things. I would probably choose Spalding Gray. He was an actor, comedian, storyteller. He did one-man shows, and he wrote a lot of books. I was obsessed with Spalding Gray for a period of time. I would choose Angela Lansbury because I freaking adore her. Um, you know, she is such a legend. So not only is she this amazing stage actress, but then she also starred in the best mystery television show of all time, <laughs> Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> She's just iconic, and I would love to tell her life story because I think uh, she is such an inspiration to so many people and had such an amazing career and was so resilient and steadfast in her art and, and her presence in, our, uh, in pop culture. So I would love to play Angela Lansbury one day. Well, the reason I asked this question is because our guest today, Jared Freiberg, has played a very famous um, musician and pop culture icon himself. And we're going to hear more about that during my conversation with Jared. So I hope you all enjoy. Hi, everybody. My name is Jared Freiberg. I'm from Des Moines, Iowa, but I currently live in Las Vegas, Nevada. I am an entertainer that runs my own business. I'm a piano player and singer. I have my own band that tours 
around with different cruise ships and different theaters called Jared Freiburg and the Vagabonds. And for the most part, we specialize in like 50s and 60s rock and roll type music, but a little bit of everything. So uh, I'm just very, very happy to be here. And thank you for having me, Katie. Oh, you're so welcome, Jared. Thanks for making the time to sit down with me today. I'm really excited to talk about your career and all the interesting things you've done uh, so far and like your very short career, actually. So why don't we dive right in? Sure. All right. So first of all, tell me a little bit about yourself. You mentioned you're from Des Moines, Iowa, but you play 50s and 60s music. So let's get your origin story. Where did this love of this musical style come from and how did you get to where you are today? Absolutely. Well, I, I guess there's a couple of different ways I could could explain to make to make a long story short or at least medium length. You know, I was born in Des Moines, Iowa, and um, I would say my influence of some of the older music came really in two main parts. The first part being a huge influence from my grandparents, specifically on uh, on my dad's side. So I'd go over there. You know, Grandma had a piano. She'd teach me little things on the piano. Kind of got me started there. And, um, you know, we'd watch old shows like Lawrence Welk and she'd get out her old vinyl records and play the Rat Pack like Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and Perry Como and all those guys. And I'd heard none of that kind of music up until that point. You got to remember, I'm like six years old at that point, you know, in kindergarten, nobody's talking about Sammy Davis Jr. at this time. You know, I was just me learning things and getting exposed to things that I had no idea. But Specifically, when it came into like the kind of rock and roll piano feel thing, I remember very clearly when I was in middle school, um, I think seventh grade, it was a choir class, just like a big general choir hour of the day. And our teacher uh, named Mrs. Woodburn, she would always pass out like warm up pieces for all of us to just kind of get our voices going, you know. And one day she passes out a song called Great Balls of Fire by Jerry Lee Lewis. <laughs> And I never heard of this guy before up until that point. I, I was like, okay. So we're singing the song and everything. I was like, oh, this is kind of whatever. But she was playing those boogie woogie kind of piano lines. So, you know, I immediately after the class, I went up to her and I was like, what is that? You know, and um, she kind of just wrote down the name for me. And she said, you know, go on YouTube and look this up and, and tell me tomorrow what you found. And that kind of opened my world into like, oh, mm -hmm. that's that's what entertaining on a piano means oh. you know the jerry lee lewis's the ray charles the stevie wonders the little richards the fats dominoes and it was like wow that's that's a whole other thing so i mean once that once that egg was cracked i i think there was no going back i was just obsessed with trying to kind of keep that feeling alive and um it's just so much fun you know it's a whole different thing than playing classical music yeah which is absolutely great, but you know well, it has a really different feel and different element. And like you said, it's a performance. It's like performance art almost in itself because it is so physical and has like a different emotional current to it as well. Entirely. So from there, you learn about Jerry Lee Lewis. You're learning about all these great musicians. Where does that take you? So you get into this, you know, obviously like you become a virtuoso on the piano um, huh. and then you go off to school, right, to study jazz music. And that takes you in a completely different direction. Well, it's really interesting, Katie, because I, I'd, I'd imagine myself as like, um, kind of like a jazz guy, you know, like a jazz singer, kind of jazz instrumentalist. It was my dream to kind of be, at least at that, at that time, I was orienting myself kind of more like the Harry Connick Jr., Nat King Cole, kind of mm -hmm. like, you know, piano player turned singer, you know, kind of jazz dude. You know, I was, um, I was part of all state jazz choir a couple of years in a row and the clinician, slash director 
Um, her name is Christine Guter, and she is a wonderful, wonderful um, director, musician, clinician out of um, Cal State Long Beach. She's actually a professor there of uh, the Vocal Jazz Studies program. And she had um, put my interest in saying, hey, why don't we get you out to, to California and see if this can work? And, and um, senior year finished up, and I went out to Cal State Long Beach and began my jazz studies degree where I was a double vocal and uh, piano jazz major over there at Bob Cole. But that was like, it just all happened so fast. You know, it's like the end of high school, bam, college. And mm-hmm. it's it's fun we get to do this because even reminiscing just on that small six month to two year period, it's like so much stuff happened in such a short amount of time. It's kind of crazy to wrap yeah. my head around. Then the next step of your career, so you go out to California, and then the stars sort of align for you again. So tell me more about the next step. So you're in school, and then you launch like a completely different phase of your career, which is what brought you kind of to your moment today. So can you walk me through that? So let me let me back up a little bit to talk about Million Dollar Quartet. So Million Dollar Quartet is a, uh, it's a show about um, Jerry Lee Lewis, Elvis, Johnny Cash and Carl Perkins, based on the true story of when the four of those guys who all got their start at Sun Records in Memphis, Tennessee, and, you know, they're just having a jam session, just having a fun old time. And then eventually the recordings of that night came out, then they made a show out of it, and it went to Broadway in 2009. So after it was on Broadway for a brief run, it did its first national tour. My cousin had the idea of taking me and my grandma, same grandma I spent a ton of time growing up with. Uh, to go see this show because this was around the same time that I was learning this Jerry Lee Lewis nonsense, you know, breaking keys and playing with my feet and all that stuff. (laughs) So they said, Oh, it's be good. So I'm 14, you know, 15. We go to see the national tour as it came through Des Moines and we saw the show and I was like, Oh my gosh, what an amazing show. You know, I'm thinking to myself, this guy gets to play the role of Jerry Lee Lewis and he gets paid to do all this and, and tour the country and everything. So in, in the back of my head, around freshman year of high school, I got this light bulb. I'm like, okay, well, you know, maybe that can be something. If, if anything ever t- turns itself into an opportunity there, I would love, love, love to do that show. You fast forward to when I'm now at Cal State Long Beach, getting used to the college thing. By the time I got into my second semester, around the same time, one of my friends kind of in, in, in the circle of Million Dollar Quartet and kind of these 50s guys and everything, he told me about how Million Dollar Quartet was being adapted into a TV show and that they were hosting open auditions in Memphis. I'm thinking to myself, oh, here's, you know, brilliant me. I'm thinking, well, I'll just go over there and I'll just audition and I'll get on TV and that'll solve everything. <laughs> so I was like... So I had uh, I had like a little bit of money left to buy a plane ticket to Memphis, flew myself out to Memphis on a whim, and they had the open auditions at the high school that Elvis Presley went to. Oh, wow. And I stood in this line of extras. You know, I didn't have an appointment. I didn't have anything like that. You know, nobody knew that I could play or sing or anything. I just had my kind of 50s garb on and went in there, stood in line for two, three, four hours, finally got to the people who, you know, were assessing and the casting and everything. And I said, no, no, no. Like I sang and I play and this and that and the other thing. And they said, oh, so you're not here for an extras placement. I said, no, I'd like, I'd like to audition for the lead. And they said, okay, they hand me this orange packet. And they're like, here you go. Okay. You go up to the elevator and tell this guy that we told you to go. So I go around to this other side, take the elevator up five floors into this much more secure room that has like all the producers and the creatives and everything like that. 
And that is the first time that I met a guy who I would work with for many, many years beyond that, a guy named Chuck Mead, who was the music director for Million Dollar Quartet from its inception, from the very, very beginning. And of course, they you know, rallied him in to be the music supervisor for this TV show for CMT. I met him right there, and I'm, of course, shaking. You know what I mean? I've never been in a position like this. He's like, oh, you're here to, to, to maybe audition for Jerry Lee Lewis? And I was like, yeah, 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 I can do it. He's like, oh, that's great, man. But uh, we don't, uh, we didn't get a piano in today. I don't know what happened. We're supposed to have a piano up here, but we don't have one. So he's like, well, we'll come back tomorrow. We're going to do a screen test and then you can come in and, you know, we'll do a screen test. It's okay. So I go in the next day, I do a screen test. I didn't know at the time and nobody decided to tell me they had already cast their Jerry Lee Lewis. Oh. But nobody decided to tell me that. Everybody else who made it into the TV show was was at the screen test with me, Drake Milligan, who played Elvis at the time. And um, I, I can't remember the gentleman who played Johnny Cash. And everybody was there. So, like, we're doing screen tests, and they've got cameras coming around. It's like, all right, now you play this, and you play this. And I'm thinking to myself, like, is this it? Like, like is this – I was really convinced that, like, this was the A-team. And everybody was, like, getting phone calls and, like, like signing things and whatever. And I'm just sitting there like, okay, so anything? <laughs> and they're like, oh, well, you know, go home. We'll be in touch, blah, 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 blah. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing for a good three weeks, four weeks. So I'm sitting there in, in, in L.A., well, Long Beach, tortured. Come to find out, they already had their Jerry Lee. But through Chuck Mead, I got an audition to play Jerry Lee Lewis in the actual book show, Million Dollar Quartet, for the Norwegian Getaway. They had one slot for me to come in, audition for Jerry Lee. Boom, I went in. They said, do you know any Jerry Lee songs? I said, name one. <laughs> <laughs> I, said, I said, name one song from the show. I'll play it for you right now. Like I was so determined to get this job that I had memorized the whole soundtrack. I went in, I did the thing, and then I drove back to Long Beach. I was in one of my choir classes there. I was getting a phone call, so I just dipped out. <laughs> and they're like, where are you going? I was like, I got to take this. And um, I didn't actually end up catching the call. They left the voicemail. And I was sitting there outside the, uh, just on, on the campus and listening to the voicemail. And they said, hey, we'd like to offer you the job. It's an eight-month contract, and you got to start in two weeks. Wow. So they like, are you putting you into rehearsals in two weeks or putting you on the ship in two into weeks? Re into rehearsals okay. in two weeks. Of course I say yes, because I was like, I went through all this trouble. I need to figure out the rest later. But yes, I'll say yes. Consider me committed to this. It was my philosophy that, you know, you're going to get this performance degree so that you can get a, a gig that can you can sustain yourself. And with this offer on the table, this eight-month contract, that's a whole year's work almost. And it's renewable. Like, I can't turn this down now. I got, and I'm getting it on the ground floor of this production. I got to go. Mm -hmm. So I had a few people who were not very happy with me, um, but Christine Guter, who who initially brought me out and really did all the legwork in getting me out, she she was she was totally supportive at the end of the day. I mean, she was she was upset, but at the same time, she said, "I I can feel that you need to do this. I'm not going to stop you from doing what you have to do. Go and do it right, and we'll be here if you want to come back." You know, wow. she was really really amazing in saying that. And then, of course, I tell my mom and dad, "I'm dropping out of college." <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they were thrilled. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And then that started that next chapter, and 19-year-old me showing up in Tampa to the Norwegian Cruise Line Creative Studios day one, 
you know, Jerry Lee Lewis. And um, that, that kind of opened up the next thing. Yeah. So you do eight months on the cruise ship and we're going to talk about cruise ship life here in a moment. Um, sure. But then after you do that for a while, um, you kind of transition to being like a, just more of a professional entertainer. And then you get pulled back into million dollar quartet Christmas. Mm-hmm. And from what I understand, you got to originate the role of Jerry Lee Lewis in this new production, which is kind of like a sequel to the original show and go mm-hmm. on the first national tour. Um, and you're on the original cast album. So what was that phone call like? And then like, how involved were you with the staging of this new show? Um, and then we're going to talk about life on the, on the ship and then life on the road too. So we're up to kind of the first few months after everything shut down in 2020. So think like May or June. And there were kind of like rumors, rumblings about, oh, we might, you know, get the creative team back together to write a sequel or maybe try to get it back to Broadway. It wasn't really clear what they were doing. Um, but I got a phone call. I'm pretty sure it was from Chuck or it might have been um, our director, Scott Weinstein. He had said, you know, we're going to, to write a whole sequel, you know, it's standalone show called Million Dollar Quartet Christmas. And I was like, well, that sounds like fun. And they're like, we'd like you to, um, you know, workshop it with us and, you know, hopefully continue on and put this into production. I said, great. I mean, of course, I'm interested in number two. What else are we doing right now? Absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. So it was interesting because. I had actually not been in like a uh, like a Broadway show workshop before, and this one, of course, had to be over Zoom. <laughs> you know, so it's okay. In a situation like in a situation like you and I are right now, except we had the whole creative team. We'd have a, a twenty-five person meeting like this, and then Colin Escott, who is a, a very very good author and kind of a, a rock and roll aficionado, he wrote the script. And he was one of the writers for the original show, Million Dollar Quartet. And um, so he brought it back and kind of just told us what his vision was and this and that and the other thing. And then he said, you know, this is kind of a rough set list. This is a rough script. And then we did readings and we did readings and we did readings and then trimmed the fat here, added a spot there. So this took place. We had about a month of workshopping in June and about another month of workshopping the following November of that year. 2021 came around, we got the green light and said, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to go to this, the Phoenix Theater Company in Phoenix, Arizona. And what we're going to do is we're going to use their studios and we're going to have two different casts simultaneously workshopping and producing this. We're going to have one cast that goes out and premieres it on the road and one cast that stays in Phoenix and and, um, performs it here at the Phoenix Theater. And we'll do two runs at the same time. So, okay, that sounds fun. So we went to Phoenix, did all of those things. It was a great experience. We spent about a month down there. It was kind of cool too, because I'd never been in a situation where it was just double everything. Mm-hmm. Like I had another Jerry Lee Lewis that I was working with um, that that was really, really fun. And um, other other directors and other costumers. So it was just like, you kind of had double the passion and inspiration happening at the same time. And we all just kind of put our heads together to make the show the best that it could. What I really loved is that there weren't really any egos in that room. We all worked together. We just tagged in for different scenes. It's like, oh, I really like how you did that instead of the way that I did that. Oh, can I borrow that? Oh, can I do this? And it's like, oh, it's just cool. a really nice to have a collaborative experience. So we did that, took it out on tour. That was my first bus tour um, where we slept on the bus and each bus had about 10 or 12 bunks. And what we do is we would do hit and runs where we just Hit the venue, set up, do the show, tear down, leave around midnight to one in the morning, 
do all the driving overnight while we were asleep, wake up in a new town, new venue. And we did that for about six weeks. And that was, uh, that was a lot of fun. It was very cold on the bus, let me tell you. <laughs> <laughs> One of those things that you don't think about when it comes to tour life, you need extra blankets. Oh, man. So, and there's no Seriously. room for those on a tour bus. Like, you get, what, probably, what, one suitcase and uh, yeah. Yeah, a carry-on? Yeah. I mean, it was nice. I mean, there were, there were nice, big, big coaches, and I certainly didn't feel like um, we were cramped or anything like that. But it was, it was just a different experience. You know, I'd never been on a bus tour like that sure. where it was just kind of like day after day after day. And some, some runs we had, you know, seven days, eight days in a row, we're doing shows. And that's one thing if you're in one venue and you're going back to the same bed every night, you know? Um, but when you're on a bus and you're in a new location with a new, new weather and you don't even know if the showers have hot water or not, you know, it's like, right. it's, there's just all these other factors, but we made it work. You know, we went out as a team, we all loved each other and we we're all there for each other. Nobody got seriously sick. Of course, this is still during the time where we have to take COVID tests every other day, you know, sure. so one positive test, the whole thing goes down more right. or less, you know, so we were very so careful with, and yeah, all the restrictions and the, yeah, sure. You had a COVID compliance officer and like all of those Absolutely. things for the tour. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Our poor stage management, you know, I mean, they had, they had so many tasks, tasks at hand in, in, um, in addition to their normal job requirements, you know, they had all these COVID protocols that they had to dance around, you know, and try to mm -hmm. keep everybody safe. And they did a very good job of doing that. I must say they did it again last year and they're on tour right now. As I know. I actually until... just had it here at the Midland Center for the Arts. I just saw it the other night. You did? Um, I did. Oh, I did. Amazing. <laughs> did you like the show? I did like the show. Prepping for this conversation today, I was particularly watching the Jerry Lee Lewis character. He's pretty full of himself, I would say. Oh, you yeah. know, like you mentioned, he's like 20, you know, 20 years old at the time of this story. And he has a big ego. But oh, I mean, he can play. He can play like a mother, right? So like what just, you know, on the artistic side of things, what is it like playing a character like that, that is, you know, pretty different from yourself? What's that like night after night after night, expending that energy and putting on that persona? Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, and, and I think it's important too to underline the character part of things, you know, because at the end of the day, like this, this is in, in, in part an impersonation at the same time, he's written a way to, to be the comic relief of the show. Got you it. know, I mean, like there's a lot of serious things going on with the other guys. And then Jerry's just like, oh, wow, pretty girl in the room. Oh, cool. Um, uh, you guys are, oh, hey, 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 look at me. Watch me play. Hey, look at this. Look. It's just like, I think once you kind of learn a little bit more about the man, Jerry Lee Lewis himself and, the, you know, the real story. I mean, he wasn't this, you know, kind of clowny, you know, like jumping around on top of pianos, like, woo, like, like crazy kind of monkey figure, like he's kind of written in to be. Um, but he did, he was very, he thought very highly of himself. He really, really did. And in a way that it was just like, he was just so sure of his talent and he was so sure. I mean, the guy had more conviction than probably any artist that I could think of. I mean, he just knew, he knew what he had and, um, you know, self-proclaimed God-given talent. And he says, if you're in my way, I'm just going to plow through you, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm going to get to the top by any means necessary, you know, but getting to play that character was very fun because all these other, <laughs> these other guys had like these dramatic scenes where it's like, oh, this and that and everything. And I'm just telling jokes and playing piano and, you know, 
talking about, you know, down home in Faraday, Louisiana, and how it kind of backwoods, backwards, this and that and the other thing. And, and I think now it's easy, you know, to kind of look at it from a 2023 lens and say, God, this, this guy's just a complete backwards animal. You know what I mean? Which at the end of the day, we have to remember that this is the 1950s. And these are people that are born in the 30s, you know, 100 years ago, almost. And, um, yeah. you know, I think Colin Escott and, and the team, they did a really good job of writing this in a way to kind of give truth, rectify the greatness of these people, but also reflect the humanity in them. You know, they weren't just these icons, these stars, these celebrities that people listened to and looked up to. They were just very regular people, regular dudes. And that's kind of like the form that they take on when they got to be in Sun Studio in Memphis, Tennessee. It was like, oh, I can just let my shoulders go down. Right. I can relax. You're just my buddies. So let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about life as a performer. Um, so let's compare and contrast life on a cruise ship versus life on the road. So sure. you did, you know, those tours on the cruise ship and then you hit the road with the tour and then uh, with your own band. So, you know, first of all, like, what is it like performing a Broadway show on a ship, like on a cruise liner? What are the things that you have to adapt to, to perform that? on a ship versus in a stationary venue. This cruise liner, the Norwegian Getaway, was one of the newest ones in the fleet. It's massive. At the time it was built, it was the largest cruise ship in the world. Wow. And that was in, 20, and that was in 2014. And their theater, I mean, it's it's huge. I mean, it's the size of a Broadway theater. Okay. And um, if not bigger, I mean, it probably holds at least 1,100 seated. Wow. What's interesting is that none of these sets are, are permanent. They would have us do four or five shows in two days. On a Thursday night, they would tear down whatever was on the stage that day, and then they'd build the set. Friday and Saturday, we'd perform on it, and then they'd tear it all down again to make room for the other shows, you know? So that was that was a little different to get used to, but at the end of the day, the production value was phenomenal. They essentially just took the set from Las Vegas, and that set was, it was scaled down a little bit. The show was kind of tightened up to be a tight 90. That ran for a while very successfully, and they pretty much just took that blueprint, copied and mm -hmm. pasted it onto the ship. I mean, it's almost it. identical to that, you know? So it really wasn't changed per se, to accommodate the cruise ship at all. It was just very interesting. You know, you, you're on the water all the time and you're going to all these amazing places and you got all these passengers and then every Sunday, boom, 5,000 of them leave and 5,000 new people come on. It's like moving to a new town every single week for months. So kind of a, kind of a scramble of the mind. Um, but, but I absolutely loved it. I mean, the, 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 the talent and the people that you got to work with and we had wardrobe on board and we had two stage managers and there were spotlight operators. I mean, it was really the, the lighting designers were on and just making it specifically mm -hmm. for this ship and for this room. And it just, to see all that happening at once, I was like, Oh, this is where I need to be. Cause just people, wow. people who are the best at what they're doing are doing it here. Mm -hmm. And I get to see it and kind of learn from them, you know? So we, we premiered it on that ship in May of 2016. And I did the same thing in 2017, 2018, and 2019. Wow. So essentially they'd have the same cast on and they'd alternate every six months. So in a year's time, there'd be two different casts kind of taking up that time. So I just kind of came back and came back. And in between, what I would do is I'd go on theatrical rights worldwide <laughs> and I would see who bought licenses to Million Dollar Quartet to produce it for you know six months from now. And then I would just cold email them and say, hey, you're looking for a Jerry Lee or I can give you three out of the four if you're looking, blah, 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 blah. Right. And most time you don't get a response or most time you get, a, oh, you know, we're good. Thanks. But every once in a while you get the, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. Let's talk. 
And that that is how I spent my time in between kind of waiting to come back for the cruise ship was finding regional productions of the show. It was kind of nice going from the cruise ship stage to like a smaller regional theater stage and then back to the cruise ship stage and just kind of like, it's a completely different experience as you know. Oh yeah. I can imagine a little bit of the, the whiplash, um, and like getting, I imagine getting your sea legs back after like being on land, doing the show on land and then having to go back on the water. Once you're on the cruise ship doing a gig like that, like it, it just seems like a dream for the first about two months. Then the time sets in. Right. And Cause you're only performing like, like you said, two days a week. What, what do you do with the rest of that time? Do you just cry? No, <laughs> no, you <laughs> I would recommend everybody to at least try it, even if it's something that they can, that they think a little bit that they could do. Because at the end of the day, it's six months of your life. And if you hate it, for whatever reason, you don't ever have to go back, but at least you'll have learned something. At least you'll have made good money, whatever. But everybody gets to a point around month three or four, maybe it's the halfway point where it's just like, man, I'm here for a very long time. I think by the end of the six months, you're like, oh, I'm just dying to get home to get me out of here. I'm so excited to go home. But then you're home for a bit and you're like, man, I kind of really miss being on that cruise ship, going to the Caribbean (laughs) and going to Mexico every week. Everybody's in it together. I think that's what it's like. It's like, you know, I mean, you're kind of this niche entertainment in this small department in a much bigger environment. At the end of the day, people, they, they still like to let loose, still like to party. They like to make friends and they like everybody to be happy. So long as you have friends and a support system and you know that you're there for a reason, you can appreciate the fact that you might not be able to do that again or for very long. It just kind of ticks by. You get used to the the food that you like in the buffet. I mean, here's the thing. You get room and board paid for, you got food paid for, the free travel. It's really a great opportunity to save money or get ahead, especially if people coming out of getting a music or an arts degree of some kind, you want to go on a cruise ship and and, then pay off some of those student loans. It's an amazing way to do that. I know a lot of people who were doing that and and did that successfully. So I'd recommend to anybody who's even thinking about it, really consider Mm -hmm. auditioning for something like that, because I don't think you'd regret it, even if it's just six months of your life. It's cool. Yeah. Great opportunity to bank some money, pay off some loans, save for the future. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about the business side of being a touring artist. So now you've done million dollar quartet, you've done the national tours, you start out uh, your own act as Jared Freiberg and the Vagabonds. You have an agent now, you're touring, you're doing dates around the country. What has the business side of that been like for you? Kind of through that transition, getting an agent, negotiating contracts, and like now, and you know, as of this conversation, you're only 27. Nego- like I like how you say only 27. That <laughs> makes me feel so good because because between you and me, Katie, I'm as old as I've ever been. So I feel I'm starting well, to me feel too, it. But, um, <laughs> but you've negotiated a lot of contracts and you've had to handle a lot of different situations at a very young sure. age. So what's been like the biggest learning curve or the biggest area of growth for you on the business side of things? Sure thing. Yeah. And I'm not going to pretend like I haven't made any mistakes because I have, you know, or I've, or I've, you know, made negotiations where, you know, I I didn't really know what I was doing or whatever, but at the end of the day, I feel like kind of the overarching message is you can't be afraid to fail, you know, or even just misstep a little bit because you'll learn from every single little thing that you do. And for me, when I started the group, Jared and the Vagabonds. The reason this even came to be was because I had a very good buddy of mine who I'd met in this million dollar quartet world, a guy named Ben Hale. He recommended that I create some original music, like an EP, so that I could have something of my own 
to kind of diversify kind of really got to me and he said you know what you should really test yourself and you know i'll be your music supervisor on your album or whatever and i'll help you and i'll, I'll find your producer and whatever and he did all these things to, to help me ben really really helped me out a lot with that and got me to put out my first little ep in june of 2019 so now i've got this ep of some original music and you know i'm on the ship and i'm thinking to myself i've got all these cds and you know this 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 jerry lee thing i still love it but it's like year four and i just told the guys you you remember when you saw million dollar quartet how there's a brother jay and fluke the bass player and the drummer yeah in the show so our brother Jay and Fluke, our bass player was named Michael Sinclair, and our drummer was named Jamie Piddle. And we were all good friends at this point, of course, after working together for months and months and months. I asked Michael and Jamie, I said, guys, aren't you bored? <laughs> you know, like, like, like we got all this time off. Like, what? So I said, listen, if, if I were to, to find a slot for us to perform our own little thing, you know, once a week for 45 minutes is not paid. I mean, I'll pay you guys, you know, because it's my production, but would you be interested in doing that for like, you know, an extra 25 bucks a week? You know, what do you think? And they're like, oh yeah, sure. You know, they're not doing anything. So they were, they, they jumped right on board. All I did, Katie, was write out a set list of songs that I knew I wanted to do, including some of my originals. And the whole point was for me to practice and try to find who I was as a performer on stage when I wasn't in character, mm. when I was just me. And I wanted to find it. So that's why I made this show. And well, there was no script. There was no policy. There was no production to any of it. I just went out there and winged it, you know, completely like an idiot. But at the same time, it was like I had to jump in with the deep end and see what what works and what doesn't. After a couple months of doing that, we had some people recommend, hey, you should, you should um, record some footage of this, put together a demo reel and send it to agencies that hire guest entertainers for cruise ships, not full-on production cast where you're there for seven, eight months, but people who mm -hmm. just come in for a week. Right, and do, do the cabaret show, things. And, get yeah. in, get out, you know? So I was like, okay, that's really interesting. So that started that endeavor. Suddenly I had a show and a billing that um, I could sell on my own. I, I tell you, the biggest thing that changed for me was when I got a manager. Up until that point, trying to navigate and, and cold email and pitch decks and all these other things and respond and negotiate and phone calls. And it's it's tough because a lot of different um, you know, venue owners or, or talent buyers, they just they just look at you differently if you don't have representation. Which isn't to say that you can't go out and find your own gigs, because you absolutely can. You just you can't take no for an answer sometimes. You just go out there and you can't be afraid to get ignored or rejected. You just move on to the next one. Keep going, keep going. Because even as my managers always said, it's like you got you to gotta send out 100 emails. And if you get two back, you're like in the 1% working. You know, I mean, that's the, the most successful people deal with rejection all day long, you know. And once I signed on with my manager, things totally took another turn because then I had somebody who was a mentor to me who'd been in the business for a long time, knew what they were doing, and I could ask them questions about what was going wrong inside of that. And then I was able to just focus on the performing, focus on the show and the producing side of it, because it's kind of hard to do everything at once. You know, and I think up until this point, I think I'd, I'd taken a lot of pride in, oh, I'm doing it all by myself. You can't do that forever. No, you, you can't. Know? And it's okay to ask for help. That's the big thing. Ask for help. Find people in your circle or in your in your world, your atmosphere, who are doing things you want to be able to do and just ask them, you know, just ask them and say, you know, how can I pay you for your time so you can school me on this a little bit? Give me a little master class. But having a manager or, or an agent of any kind definitely is not a bad idea <laughs> so long as they're transparent with you about what they expect out of you and what their commission is and everything right. like that. But, you know, 
follow your instincts, I feel like would be my advice to anybody. You know, you know if somebody's in it for the wrong reasons with you, you know, and you just got to be okay ebbing and flowing with good and bad years, good and bad months. That's the thing to understand is that um, weathering, being able to make great money in January and no money in February, mm. and sometimes maybe no money in March either. Right. Having, having kind of a plan. The really big thing that everybody, not just artists, but everybody has a problem with is getting a good grasp of your finances, getting a good grasp of spending money on things you don't need and spending, you know, too much on certain things like like getting a big apartment when you don't really need one or maybe living in a city that's incredibly expensive. And everybody's got their own path, but definitely getting a hold of your finances and just be just be willing to make some sacrifices for your art. You know what I mean? You can't you can't have everything and the art sometimes, yeah. you know what I mean? Some, sometimes I it think, means you can't have a family. Yeah. Sometimes it means you can't have a relationship, you know, just sometimes, not always. Sometimes it means you can't have the big, nice car. You know, you, you just got to, you've just got to know how much time, you know, your goals and your aspirations are going to require of you, you know, in order to, to make them work and actually make them work at all. I think for me, things really got going good when I was very strict about about my finances and knowing, you know, it's like, okay, you know, right. you're going to run into obstacles, you're going to run into problems and how you deal with those problems. Not only does it define your character, but it defines how much you can tolerate this life. Cause if you get super, super stressed or bent out of shape about one small problem and you have five of those a day, you're going to get burnt out really fast. Just roll with the punches and know that none of these little problems are really that big of a deal. Take it as it is. Always treat people with respect as much as you possibly can, even people who are treating you with disrespect. You know, not, I'm not saying necessarily that you have to go out of your way for them, but don't work around to try and get back at people. The thing about that is that this is a big industry, but it's a very small community. You know, yes. so everybody oh, knows gosh, everybody. Oh, gosh, yes. That everybody knows so everybody. so true. And you know <laughs> so this, I'm true. sure, more than anybody. <laughs> That's all wonderful and practical advice and, you know, coming from real world experience. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. So Jared, I don't know if you know this, but the podcast has a time machine. So one of our co-hosts, Brian Zilmer, somehow got a time machine. And we like to take our guests back in time to a prior moment in their life and explore a little bit. So you and I, I know, surprise. <laughs> Did you not know I'm this psyched. about Todd? I'm psyched. <laughs> so you and I met actually just at the 2023 Midwest Arts Expo, and it was your first conference experience, your first showcasing experience. So mm -hmm. that, knowing that about you, that's where I want to take you back to and ask you just, and this is just a few months ago. So if we could get back in that time, get in that time machine and go back to September, mm. what do you know now that you wish you would have known then headed into Max? It, it being my very first experience, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about like, because I, I knew a lot of the other groups there. Um, you know, I'd, I'd cross paths with them and everything like that. If I knew what I knew now, I would have probably prepared a little differently. You know, and some of these things were out of my control just because there's time constraints and everything like that. Um, mm -hmm. This for us was kind of actually a last minute thing to get put together through one of our different agencies who said, hey, you know, we'd like to put you into this Mac showcase. We said, OK, tell us more. Knowing what I know now, I think that, you know, I would have tried to plan it out an, an extra six months ahead of time. Sure. It seemed like the real key players, at least showcasers in that in that showcase were people who did a couple different things. They were very um, particular and smart about when their time slots were, about which room they were in, and they did it on multiple nights. And for us, 
you know, based on a, a, a few different variables, we had the second to last time slot on the first night. PM, you know, so, you know, not a great slot because most people were gone. It was, it was in a nice room, but probably not the main room that you would necessarily want if you could choose. Mm -hmm. And it was only on that one night, you know, so as much as a learning experience for that, for that showcase was for us, I don't want to speak too soon, but it doesn't seem as though anything has come from it yield wise into actual work. Mm-hmm. Which isn't to say that it was a waste of time because it was not a waste of time in any means. But if you're going to do something like that, I would recommend to anyone get a get a good scope of what the whole thing is, and try to kind of look towards the you know the groups that are really like kind of leading the pack and trying to see what they do. You know, because obviously they've done a few before. You know what I mean? Like if I were to do it again, it would not have been eleven o'clock slot. <laughs> For 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 yeah, seven no. for seven buzzed people, you know. Oh no! You know, I mean, I mean, and again, I'm not. I don't. I don't want to complain. I don't. I don't. I don't want to be that kind of guy. I'm not trying to string any negativity, but we definitely slipped up a little bit, you know, and mm-hmm. not doing our due diligence there. You know, yeah. it was you know, don't don't jump into one of these things last minute, is yeah. what I would tell myself. Again. Great, really practical advice. Like, but I got to meet you, Katie. <laughs> so that's that's the gift that keeps so on relating. giving this holiday season. Thank you. I'm so I'm glad we bumped you. into each other at the bar and got introduced. So. I know. Literally, I was like I, I, just there for the drink tickets. It was me. That was uh, <laughs> kind of how it goes sometimes. I love that. Well, Jared, it has been such a pleasure talking with you. One last question. You know, sure. thinking about everything that you've gone through, how you've built up your career, kind of the phase you're in now going to conference for the first time. What do you like most about working in the industry today? I think the best thing about working in the industry, especially as it pertains to the the time period that we're living in, you don't have to scroll very far on Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or anything. It it, it seems these days, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of tension and, um, you know, there's a lot of things to get worked up about. But there's this other side of the world that I try to continue sharing with people. And it's that even though many of us are strangers, we do have, we're more in common than we're different. You know, music for me is is that main vehicle in bringing people together and getting to do shows live and in person. I say this at every single one of my shows. I said, you know, you guys, this would be, this would be a fine show if it was just the three of us up here performing to an empty room. We would have fun. We, should, we would still have fun. But the point is you guys all came in here and you, you know, you collaborated, even though most of you don't know each other, you all got to sit here and focus on something and share in something really special. You know, so working in the industry for me is being able to remind people that there's a lot more love in the world and camaraderie and mutual respect and kind of will for a better future than I think we give ourselves credit for in a lot of um, how we spend our time on our phones, looking down instead of looking up at the person in front of us. And I think if art can be a reason that we look at people more than screens and opinions and other people's, you know, assessments of things. All we got to really do is kind of look more inward and more at the people in front of us to find actual compassion. And I think that art is the best way of doing that. It's a great way to learn. It's a great way for people to put all bad matters to the side for a while and just enjoy something that uh, we all really love. I mean, there's so much beautiful art out there. And that's, mm-hmm. that's why getting to work alongside people who share in that pursuit is, 
I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. I really do. Well, that is a perfect note to wrap on. Thank you, Jared, so much for your time today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. It's been so fun getting to know more about you and your career. And frankly, we can't wait to see where you go next. Amazing. Thank you, Katie. Let's do this again sometime. Katie, thank you for introducing us to Jared. I really enjoyed this conversation and, and hearing what he had to say. I related to a lot of it. And I was just blown away that he's only 27 and he just, he speaks like he's been in the industry much over 27. Yeah, that was incredibly shocking. Uh, when that was mentioned, I was like, wait, what? I mean, because he's, and, and not even just like the things he's learned, like just the things he's done in that short amount of time is really impressive. I also really enjoyed somebody talking about the cruise ship experience that wasn't negative. Yeah. 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 I've only heard negative stuff. Exactly. Yeah. I, um, you know, that's not an area that I would have ever encouraged um, a young person to like look into and, you know, certainly heard some horror stories. So it's like everything you got to look into, but it's amazing to see the kind of career that you can build on one of those. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm sure a lot of it, like, like most things, it ends up, you know, being who you work for, work with for those experiences. But also I was thinking about that is I forget just how massive these cruise ships actually are like when you're talking about you know basically a broadway theater on a ship and then all of the other things that 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 go with you know life on a cruise ship you know like basically a floating city block like it is mind-boggling to me i never thought about it but it's true it's kind of like a touring musician hitting different cities but in reverse where the the people, you know, the towns come to him at a time, 5,000 at a time, whatever. And and that was a, an interesting perspective to think of it that way. I was really impressed at what he did in the six months that he wasn't on the boat. The ingenuity behind, hey, I've played this role. Let me reach out. And I've already got it on my resume. I already know it. Find who has the rights, reach out and see if I can hop into their show. And, and filling his time with what he already knew to create more supplemental income, I think was incredibly ingenuitive and really impressive. Yeah, Josh, I wanted to talk about that too. When he started saying that, I was like, oh, dang, that's smart. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you've got video, you've got sizzle reel. I mean, you've got the photos. What more could you want as a producer of putting that show together? Someone that can step right into the role, very little training, you, you know, knows the part, can slip in with whatever cast you put together. Yeah. It's was super smart on his part to work that far ahead to and work those connections and work that training that he already had. His drive is something that's evident throughout the course of the conversation we had. And I, something I really admire about him. He like really went after what he wanted at 19 and went after that part and then made the best of the opportunity that was given to him. And he's rolled it into so many other things. The one part though, that you can hear a little bit of his inexperience now and which, which he'll get there is when he talked about how buyers don't look at you if you're not represented. Because obviously, you know, we all as presenters know that that's not true. We we look at self-represented artists as much as we do represented. And and depending on the venue and what your needs are uh, for what you're booking, I mean, that's just, you know, unfortunately, it, it's one of those things where it goes back to previous conversations where it takes time. And this was his first conference. And so he doesn't have that experience under his belt yet to know that it's a long game. And because the other part of that is when he talked about, you know, how he felt like the showcase experience was a dud because he didn't think he got any bookings out of it. But as any that have done showcases for many years will tell you too, it's not about a direct booking at a showcase. It's about being seen, even if it's a small room, which many showcases are, 
even for the people who are quote unquote big names, often have sometimes a handful of people in the, the room. But it's a great experience because people are discovering you and it's the first time there. So, you know, people that are in the room probably already have their next season booked or figured out. And it's not about direct booking, but it's about starting to get to know you and also to share that information with their colleagues and other people that they know. And it's, again, looking at it from a long game viewpoint, I think um, will come in time with as he develops that experience of, on that part of the business. Well said. I will say one of the things that I noticed in my conversation with Jared is honestly how humble he is and that he made sure to mention the people or thank the people along the way that have helped him at every stage of his career. And I really actually walked away from the conversation admiring that about him. And it just kind of sticks in the back of my brain how much we need to thank the people who have supported us and given us fresh perspective or, or fresh direction along the way. And we did cut a good bit of the conversation for time because we had a really robust conversation. Um, but I really appreciated that about him and just wanted to point that out, like how humble he is and how grateful he is to everyone. And just it's a good reminder that like none of us do this alone. And there are people that along the way have stopped and reminded us of like why we do this or given us a leg up or hand up or great advice. So I just really appreciated that about Jared and, and wanted to point that out. Friends, thanks so much for joining me for this conversation today. Um, one note, I do, uh, uh, we didn't talk about in the interview, but Jared also has a wonderful social media presence. So if you want to check out his piano playing skills, you can find him on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, I think he does social media really well. So for any artists that are looking for some inspiration there, definitely go check out his social media. And uh, thanks again for joining us. And we'll catch you next time on There's No Business Like. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to there's no business like. Our producers and hosts are Brian Zelmer, Josh Benson, Kevin Maynard, Katie Miller, and me, Danielle Vanho. Views expressed in this podcast are ours alone and are not reflective of the organizations we are a part of. Keep up with us at nobusinesslike.com. There you'll find links to all of our episodes and socials. If you like this podcast, give us a like, a follow, a review, or our favorite, a five-star rating. Oh, wait, what was that site? <laughs> I got it. Don't worry. It is nobusinesslike.com. Do I sound out bus ness every time I type it? Yep, sure do. Stay in touch, my friends. I was shocked when in the Jared uh, interview when Katie goes, play like a mother. <laughs> yes. Anyone catch that? Oh, I caught it. <laughs> That was very uncharacteristic. Don't worry. Before it publishes, I'm going to dub in fucker. <laughs> but like just your voice. Yeah. It's plays like it's a mother. Not, fucker. It's not uncharacteristic for me. In an interview, it is. Yeah. yeah. I feel like Brian, you could do like a biopic of like Tim the Toolman Taylor. Really? Okay. <laughs> like Tim Allen or. Like Tim, Tim Allen or that, yeah. Like Tim Take Allen care. playing the Toolman Taylor, not actual Tim Allen. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. If that's, I don't know I how don't to take that. that one. This is like a fucking deep cut. Like, yeah. That. <laughs> like that's a that's a weird, interesting biopic. <laughs> it's like very specific. I also can't wait for the scene where you're Mrs. Chip from Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Mrs. Potts, yes. I mean, oh she's... yeah. That wasn't even a math question. <laughs> it's okay. I'll be Chip. You'll find his handle in the show notes. B a n a n a s.
Tell it like a mother, Josh. I am definitely going to be working in uh, Can Play Like a Mother onto those show notes. <laughs> do I sound out B-A-N-A-N-A-S every time I type it? Sure, sure do. do. <laughs> I do have to spell that out in my head to spell bananas every fucking time. I also do that to Mississippi. <laughs> Although I rarely type Mississippi. <laughs> it's weird. I, I type it a lot. Hmm. How about that? Hmm.